Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Philistines went down to the Philistines, or I'm sorry, every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of his shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Penitentiary Hollow and Mineral State Park. You get the idea. <laughs> the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold... The multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, this tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied 
and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning uh, it, it strikes me that many of us are coming to you and our approach is sort of like King Saul. We've been rebuked. We have been convicted. We haven't followed hard after you the way that we know we should this week. We haven't sought Jesus above all else. We haven't said, I'll follow you anywhere. We've said, I'll follow you up to this point. I'll follow you if you go where I think is a good place to go. And Lord, the temptation for me and for I think many others in this room is to say, well, I'll do better this week. I'll be better these next few days. And so, Father, even this, we ask that you would forgive us for. Think of Saul, and if he would have just repented and humbled himself and said, you're right, I'm not the king that you have called to serve the children of Israel. I need to bow to the man after your heart. What would have happened in his life? And Father, we, we're in danger of going that same direction, of saying, well, I'll do better, I'll, I'll try harder, when all we really need to do is confess and repent and lean on your grace and mercy and follow the one that you sent. And so Father, this morning I pray that as we examine your word, you would make us not like King Saul, but give us the faith of a Jonathan to follow hard after Christ and to really believe that you save, that you rescue, that you pull your people away from the punishment that we deserve and out of the predicaments that we create for ourselves and that you redeem us and that you bring about a great victory, not because of any righteous works that we've done, but because of who you are and who Jesus is. This morning, Lord, we also remember those who can't be with us today. I think of Pat Narcomy as he heals from surgery. Lord, I pray that you would uh, strengthen his body and bring him home quickly. I think of Freddie Trevino, uh, Ann Duggar, others who are stuck at home. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen them and that you would send us as your people to them uh, as an encouragement. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just off Interstate 15 in Escondido, California, across the street from a Target and a JCPenney, a tiny hiking trail leads to the top of a small hill. If you're looking closely enough, now I've never been there, I've, but I've seen it on Google Maps, okay? If you're looking closely enough, you might be able to make out uh, an ancient rampart of boulders chinked with small rocks. This was a scene of a great battle. The little mound is called Mule Hill, 
and it was a major feature in the most important battle of the Mexican War of the late 1840s, the Battle of San Pasqual. After San Pasqual, the United States would go on to win the war decisively and gain more than 500,000 square miles of territory west, uh, from west of the Rio Grande all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Fascinatingly, the battle started with an almost fatal American blunder and would have ended in a, in, a, in a massacre of American dragoons had it not been for the pluck and bravery of a wiry mountain man from Missouri and the two volunteers who joined him on an incredibly dangerous quest. American forces led by General Stephen Watts Kearney and ill-equipped to take on Captain Andres Pico's nimble Californians had been severely weakened in the opening skirmishes of the battle. Out of fresh horses and weighted down and slowed by numerous wounded, Kearney's men made one last push to capture the high ground. Surrounded by a much larger force, they settled in for a siege. The situation was more or less hopeless. Starving, thirsty, surrounded by dying men and stubborn mules, Kearney himself badly injured. The only possible rescue would have to come from San Diego some 30 miles away on the other side of the besieging force through territory occupied by the enemy. It seemed impossible, but someone would have to sneak through the lines and get word to Commodore Stockton in the San Diego Harbor. According to historian Hampton Sides in his award-winning book, Blood and Thunder, quote, focused, small-scale, it was an undertaking with huge stakes and no room for error, a rescue mission that was also a courier mission. An officer present at the time called it an expedition of some peril, and there was only one man qualified for the task, the one that the Mexican army had come to call El Lobo, the wolf. Uh, we know him today. His name is Christopher Kit Carson. Carson and two others slid down Mule Hill, having removed their boots and leaving behind their canteens in order to avoid making any noise. It took them all night to get clear of Pico's forces. By the time the sun began to rise, they realized that the boots that they had stuffed into their belts were gone. So they had to make the 30-mile trek barefoot. By that afternoon, they were 12 miles away from San Diego, and once again, they spotted Mexican sentries. Carson and his two pals split up, each taking a different route. Twelve hours later, at around three in the morning, Kit Carson stumbled into Stockton's camp on the Pacific. His feet were so badly lacerated that he wouldn't be able to walk for a week. He hadn't drunk any water or eaten any food in 30 hours. Stockton sent out reinforcements to bail out the men on Mule Hill, and Carson's exploits would be remembered as one of the finest examples of mountain man bravery in the history of the United States. A young sergeant present at the time would write back to his parents in Hartford, Connecticut, quote, Never has there been a man like Kit Carson. He is as fearless as the lion, as stealthy as the panther, as strong as the oxen. I believe that Carson would attack a fort filled with enemy forces single-handedly and drive them off. Carson was one of the first American celebrities. He was famous for his bravery and skill, but even earlier in, early in his career, he had become almost larger than life. Dime novels, the covers of which were splashed with colorful illustrations of a muscular, buckskin-clad hero stalking a grizzly or slaying a savage, 
were filled with can't-put-it-down accounts of Carson's exploits, some of which were actually true. He was the epitome of American rugged individualism and the embodiment of the imperialistic era of American history we call Manifest Destiny. Of course, Carson himself was a complex figure. He didn't care about all that stuff. He never checked his stats on social media. He hated those dime novels. Most of the time he was following orders, but what his life illustrates is the inclination of human culture, almost a need within us, to find a hero, a champion, someone to represent us, someone to serve as the distillation of our highest ideals. In our text today, we encounter a man who struck the same chord in the hearts of the children of Israel. His name is Jonathan, the son of King Saul. Jonathan is one of the few individuals described in Scripture who actually has, the narrator actually has nothing bad to say about him. That's extremely rare. He is in every way a hero, a man of courage, an example of faith, and an illustration of the one in whom our faith should rest. Throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, the rest of this book, from a literary perspective, Jonathan is going to serve as sort of a foil for King Saul. He is meant to contrast, we're meant to contrast father and son and learn from the ways in which they're different. And this morning, that's exactly what I intend to do. Uh, You see, when we're reading narrative, uh, historical portions of the Bible, sometimes the lesson that we're meant to take away resides in the plot, you know, the flow of the story. Sometimes the lesson resides in the dialogue, framing the events of the story. In this passage, however, the focus is on character. How is Jonathan different from Saul? Well, it seems to me that there are at least five significant contrasts between King Saul, who the children of Israel had wanted to lead them in battle. You remember that from a few chapters ago? Who ought to be the inspiring example, and young Jonathan. So first of all, notice with me, Saul clings to his own crown, but Jonathan bears the standard of I am. Saul clings to his own crown, but Jonathan bears the standard of I am. Think about the state of affairs described for us at the end of chapter 13. Saul started off with a modest standing army of 3,000. You remember that from last week. Uh, But by the end of the incident with Samuel that we discussed uh, last Sunday, his fighting force has been whittled down to 600 men against tens of thousands of Philistine troops and numerous chariots and horses. To make matters worse, the Philistines have sort of declawed the Israelite army. I mean, they don't have any weapons. They've taken all the blacksmiths out of the land of Israel. Keep in mind, this is the Iron Age. In other words, the ability to make swords and spears out of iron is literally the cutting edge of technology. Catch the pun. All right. Just want to make sure you're awake this morning. But... In all actuality, these blacksmiths, they're like the nuclear physicists of this time period, the 11th century B.C. There weren't that many of them, and the technology that they worked with, it must have been almost indistinguishable from magic. It was amazing. And the Philistines recognize this. They learn that if they're enemies, they don't, if they don't have any blacksmiths, then they won't be able to make any weapons. And what's more, uh, they'll depend on the Philistines for their economic survival. So it's sort of a two-pronged strategy. Keep them unarmed and keep them economically dependent, and they will not succeed militarily. 
So this must have felt insurmountable to the Israelites, which is why so many had escaped across the Jordan River or defected to the Philistine side. And then to make matters worse, they send out these raiding parties in three directions. And so they're pillaging uh, the countryside. The, 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 the entire land of Israel is being ravaged by these three companies of Philistine soldiers. And to seal the deal, they move their garrison, this huge fighting force, to the very place uh, the, to the mountain pass, just a mile or two to the northeast of where Saul is encamped. And what's Saul doing? Nothing. That, we're told in chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, that Saul has set up this kind of a royal court under a tree in his hometown. Some translations say it's in a cave. Other translations say it's uh, in a tree. I'm not really, or under a tree. I'm not really sure which one is right. But either way, there he sits. And notice who constitutes the nobility. He's got his royal court surrounding him. Who is in Saul's court, according to verse 3? Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. Now, that is a weird way to describe someone, isn't it? I mean, uh, think about you're telling this story, and you say, well, guess who's sitting with me right now? Frank. Who's Frank? Frank is Ralph's nephew. Why would you say something like that? Uh, it's significant because we don't know who Ahijah is, but if you've been reading the book, that name Ichabod should ring a bell. The glory has departed. In other words, the narrator is saying, guys, look, Saul has sort of duct taped together the shell of a kingdom after God told him he was going to find someone else to lead his people with 600 soldiers too stupid to know that the party is completely over. And guess who he's got sitting in the priest chair next to him? Old Glory Gone's nephew, Ichabod. The glory has departed. And what we're meant to take away from this is that the reason Saul is hanging out with a washed up and obsolete member of the priesthood is because his dynasty is washed up and, and obsolete. It's time for Saul to embrace the newly revealed will of God, as painful as it might be. And yet, what do we see Saul doing? He's pretending like if he plays it safe, and if he behaves well, moving forward, he might be able to bring things back to where they were just weeks before. And this is going to get worse as we get further into the book. In fact, it's going to be his undoing. So here's what Saul's like. He's like General George McClellan in the Civil War. You remember General McClellan? What did he do? He organized. He drilled the soldiers. He counted them. And whenever President Lincoln asked him when he was going to engage the enemy, there was always an excuse. He was passive. He was indecisive. And he played it safe. And in the end, it ended up costing thousands of lives and extending the war. That's all. He's in a game of cat and mouse, and he's the mouse. By contrast, look at Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. Can you imagine being in his shoes? He grew up the son of a king. He's obviously well-liked, very capable, extremely competent. He's perfect for the job, but he's learning that he has no future as king. And yet, instead of digging in his heels and frantically grasping for power and hoarding influence, Jonathan risks his own life for the sake of the throne of God. Saul's clinging to his crown, and Jonathan is actually out there bearing the standard of I am. Now, at the risk of over-psychologizing this text, doesn't this point of comparison fly in the face of our modern sensibilities? Think about it. By modern Western standards, Jonathan is really a tragic figure, isn't he? 
When he was growing up eating Cheerios and watching Sesame Street and the people on the cartoons were telling him, hey, you can be anything that you want to be as long as you follow your heart, he had every right to say, I want to be the king. And yet, he wasn't going to be the king. He watched the crown slip from his grasp through no fault of his own, and yet in spite of that, we're going to see Jonathan, not just here, but throughout the rest of the book, continue to give himself for the sake of the people of God. So let me ask you, are you more like Jonathan or like Saul? Are you willing to give up your share in what you think is your right in the kingdom, or are you willing to say, you know what, it's, it's, it's God's kingdom? Are you like Nacho Libre? You know, you're tired of serving food to the brothers and you want to get a taste of the glory and see what it tastes like? What I'm asking is, are you willing to serve the kingdom of Jesus even if you don't get a say, even if you don't get the credit and your role is not glamorous or exciting? Listen to what Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on this passage had to say. He said, in our minds, self-fulfillment is a right if we've ingenuity and discipline, our efforts should be crowned with success. Should we be of a religious bent, we happily acknowledge that God and or Jesus assists us in our quest. One can always use such help. But Jonathan seemed to know better. The kingdom was not Saul's or Jonathan's. It was Yahweh's kingdom. For Jonathan then, the kingdom was not his to seize, not his to rule, but his to serve. Let me tell you something. When we stop clinging, white-knuckled to our crown of glory, and we just decide, I'm going to be the lowest servant in my church, I'm going to be the lowest servant in my family, then we will experience a greater joy than we've known up to this point. A few of the guys that I went to seminary with were graduates of a Bible college in Wisconsin that has since closed its doors, but it continues to have a lasting effect in their lives. And they shared with me uh, their unique experience at graduation. Four years of college, all the work, all the toil, all the money. Most people, when you've been to a graduation before, you walk to the front of the auditorium. Uh, people, you're wearing these fancy robes. You ascend the dyes. People clap and cheer. And what's the song that's playing? What's the name of the song? Pomp and Circumstance, right? But at this college... Here's what they would do. I don't remember what song they played, but instead of giving them an embossed diploma, every graduate received an embroidered towel. It said, do as I have done to you. King Jesus didn't cling to his crown. He made himself nothing, and he clothed himself with humanity and debased himself to the lowest caste. And moments before his arrest and his beating and his shameful execution, he rose from dinner and he grabbed a towel and he washed the feet of his friends. This is what Jonathan is doing. He isn't claiming his own kingdom. He's serving the kingdom of I am. What a transformation that would bring about. If in our church, if at Indian Creek Baptist Church, we were just racing each other to serve in the lowest possible ways, I mean, what would that do? By the way, young people, if you're paying attention, you'll see glimpses of this in our church. But you have to look because the people who have grabbed their towel and are washing the feet of others, they're not doing it for the glory, they're not doing it for the money. They're serving behind the scenes. They're pulling weeds. They're washing dishes. They're visiting the sick. They're bringing food to the down and out. They're caring for the weak. 
They're here. They're all over the place, and they're bearing the standard of I am. And what I'm saying is this. Let's join them. Let's do that for Jesus' sake. Saul clings to his crown while Jonathan bears the standard of I am. Secondly, though, consider with me that Saul sees obstacles, but Jonathan sees opportunities. Saul sees obstacles, but Jonathan sees opportunities. Uh, Earlier, I had said that Saul did absolutely nothing, and that is actually an exaggeration. There is one thing that he repeatedly does in this passage. What is it? He, He numbered the people, right? He kept counting them. Uh, chapter 13, verse 15, he numbered the people that, are, that were with him. Chapter 14, verse 2, the people who were with him were about 600 men. Even after jo- Jonathan kickstarts this victory on behalf of the people of Israel, what is the first thing that Saul does according to chapter 14, verse 17? He sees that, that things are going well, and then what does he do? He says, count the people. Like he just can't stop counting the people. You can imagine Saul mustering the troops, and, and every morning on the parade grounds outside Gibeah, He's counting them, and they're, you know, it's just predictable. What is the point of counting? Saul's focused on the fact that he is a smaller force of soldiers than the Philistines. He sees, all he sees are the obstacles, and if we're being honest, we're often right there with him. I mean, can you imagine being in the circumstances that Israel faced at the end of chapter 13? No weapons. When they need somebody to, to sharpen their shovel or their pitchfork, they have to go to the Philistine blacksmith and pay them money. How are they supposed to gain the victory? And this is what we do. We count the people. We look at all the obstacles. I remember years ago uh, being at a lunch with a missionary our church supported financially, and there was this whole discussion. I'm not sure how it came about, uh, but there was this whole discussion about the birth rate in various countries, the United States and England and France and Europe, and how Muslims were having more babies than other people. And by the year whatever, they were going to be the majority culture in Europe. And a generation later, they're going to be the majority culture in the United States. And it was this kind of fatalistic discussion. And, and we're sitting there and we're at lunch with this missionary. And I remember somebody turned to him and, he, and, and said, well, what do you think about that? And he just kind of looked around at us and he said, who cares? It was like an awkward moment, but what he was saying was, who cares whether people who know Bible stories and don't believe in Jesus are more numerous than people who don't know Bible stories and don't believe in Jesus? Our job is the same. Our opportunities are the same. And and what, what I'm looking at is all these missionaries who are going to give their lives to the most dangerous corners of the world and ensure that everyone has a chance to hear the name of Jesus. I'm looking at all these young people who grew up in Muslim households and are turning aside from all that and giving their, their, uh, themselves to Christ. Listen, stop focusing on the obstacles. Stop thinking so much about what is in your way. I don't like who's in the White House. I don't like who's in Austin. My company is so anti-Christian. Our city is a mess. Our schools are in trouble. Yes, we need to talk about all that. But friends, can't you see that God loves to take dark circumstances and use those dark circumstances as the backdrop for the the most glorious and wonderful victories. Haven't we seen that enough in Scripture? Haven't we seen that enough in our church? Haven't haven't you seen that enough in your life as a believer? He loves to take the dark, dark circumstances, the impossible circumstances, and turn those around for his glory. 
So what I want to say is let's stop focusing so much on the obstacles that we miss the opportunities. Look at what Jonathan did. He grabs a friend and he says, hey, maybe God will work for us today. He's not presuming upon the grace of God. He's resting in the freedom of God. God can save by many or by few. He doesn't need to number the troops. He doesn't need that many troops. I wonder if Jonathan had been reading in the book of Judges that morning. You know, every day he gets up, his father numbers the troops, and he's thinking, I'm going to read my Bible. And he reads about Gideon. Gideon was a loser from a loser clan and a loser tribe. Threshing wheat in a wine press. You don't do that unless you're a coward. There's no breeze in the wine press. And God raises him up to lead an army, not of thousands, not of many hundreds, but a tiny fighting force of just 300 people. And they bravely and faithfully surround the enemy, and the Lord fights for them, and the oppressors are destroyed. In our day, we can remember the Apostle Paul. You remember what the Holy Spirit told him? He said, uh, don't be afraid. Uh, I have many people in this city, and there are many adversaries. Like, okay, thank you, Lord. <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do with that? Here's what we're supposed to do. Here, this is the way it always is. There are always going to be obstacles, but obstacles are God's opportunity to show the world that he doesn't need anyone or anything to complete his saving work. It makes no difference to him whether there are many or few. God is the one who saves. So this morning, do you believe that God can save by many or by few, whichever he wants? Like that your situation is an opportunity to see the salvation of the Lord. That a tiny church in an out-of-the-way small town can be a beacon of hope and healing to our neighbors. That a post-Christian culture, a culture in which people constantly tell us, oh yeah, my grandmother used to go to church can yield a harvest in which those same people begin to say, that building over there, that's where my church gathers. Saul was looking at the obstacles. Jonathan saw an opportunity. Contrast number three, Saul clings to his crown. Jonathan bears the standard of I am. Saul looks at obstacles. Jonathan sees an opportunity. And here's number three. God, or, uh, Saul uses divination, but Jonathan rests on God's revealed character. Saul uses divination. Jonathan rests on God's revealed character. Here's what I mean. There's an almost comical scene in, in verses 16 through 20 of this chapter. I think it would be great for a movie. I mean, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they're fighting at this garrison in, the, in this canyon, uh, this like special forces operation, and Saul has set up some watchmen, and they're looking at this. They can't see what's going on exactly, but they can see, like, the cloud of dust and, and that something's taking place. And, and they uh, start to see the soldiers running in all these directions. And, and then uh, they say, you know, we better tell Saul. So one of them runs back to Gibeah and tells Saul what they see, and Saul has no clue what to do. First thing he does, like we said, he, he says, let's count the soldiers again. And, and then because he's confused, he says, bring me the ark. Somehow, uh, the priest had brought the ark from Kiriath-Jerim, where it had been resting. Uh, in spite of what had happened last time, someone brought the ark into battle. Saul wanted it there with him. He's trying to use the ark the same way another king might examine a, a sheep's liver or track the movement of the planets to try to divine what was going to take place and what he was supposed to do. He's trying to figure out what to do based on favorable omens. By the way, he's going to return to this method later on in life, and it's going to be his undoing, sort of a recurring motif for Saul. 
but he just has no, he has no idea what's going on. This is, this is what happens in Saul's life. It started that way too. You remember the donkeys? He didn't know where those donkeys were, and he had to rely on his servant to figure out what to do. That was foreshadowing, and now he's clueless again. He didn't know Jonathan had left. He's setting up this divination ritual, and finally, the right course of action becomes so obvious that he says, okay, just stop. You know, I don't need the divination. We just need to go and, and, and win the battle because it's like so obvious. We're so behind. Commentator Bill Arnold tells the story of a man who every morning passed a clockmaker's storefront on his way to work at a local factory. Every day he would pause and adjust his watch to the large clock in the display window. Uh, One day the clockmaker uh, caught up with him and asked him what he was doing, and the man was a little embarrassed. He said, well, I'm actually the timekeeper at the factory, and my watch doesn't work that well, so I want to make sure every morning when I pass your store that I uh, adjust my watch and align it to the time of the clock in the window. Well, now it was the clockmaker's turn to be embarrassed. He says, I have a confession to make. That clock doesn't work very well either. And I've been able to, I haven't been able to correct the inaccuracies, and I'm kind of embarrassed about it because I'm a clockmaker. And so every day at 4 p.m., the factory bell rings, and I adjust that clock to the factory up the street. This is what Saul is doing. He's trying to adjust his watch to the wrong clock. He wants an authoritative message, but then on the other hand, he's not willing to recognize the authority of the God who has already revealed himself to him. He's already told Saul who he is. Saul thinks he needs to know what's going to happen in order to act, but he doesn't act on the basis of what he ought to know about God. Compare this with Jonathan. Jonathan is the one who's really risking his life here. He says to his armor bearer, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised and catch this. This is important. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be. Translation, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know who God is. And then when they get there, it seems like he's looking for this bolt from the blue. It it, it would be easy to read uh, into this that Jonathan's kind of looking for uh, some kind of you know, lightning bolt to tell him what to do. Really what he's doing is making sort of a tactical plan. He's saying if they tell us to stay where we are, then I guess we have to stay where we are. If they tell us to come up, then I know that we've got this, tactically. In other words, Jonathan doesn't wait till he knows all the facts before he decides to act. Why? Because what does he know? He knows God's character. He knows that it's up to the Lord whether he wants to save by many or by few. So listen, are you a Saul or a Jonathan? Do you need favorable omens before you do what you know God wants you to do? Some of you need to take this to heart. God is free to tell you exactly what to do and exactly what's going to happen when you do it. He can do that if he wants. But he is also free to keep that detail to himself. In fact, I would say this, it's going to be much more common for you that God withholds all of the, uh, some of the detail from the decisions that you make. And the reason why that is, is because he wants you to act out of wisdom. And the reason he wants you to act out of wisdom is because of what wisdom requires, according to James 1. James 1 says this, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, but let him ask in what? Let him ask in, let him ask in faith. You see, what God is interested in in your life is faith. Have you noticed that? Like if he tells you everything that he's going to do and when he's going to do it and tells you exactly what he wants, 
wants you to do without you having to wrestle with that. Do you grow in faith? No. But he wants you to grow in faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is more precious than gold. You need faith. And so what God does is he orchestrates these circumstances where we're ha- we have to rely, in order to be faithful, we have to rely on what we know about God's character instead of waiting around for God to tell us exactly what's going to happen. I know sometimes we, we use this kind of religious language, God told me to do this, God told me to do that. And, you know, of course, I don't know whether you're telling the truth or not. Uh, but don't just say that to sound spiritual. God told me to do that. Pray about it. Ask for godly counsel. Ask God for wisdom. Ask you to show him what he wants you to do. But recognize that God, in his sovereignty, in his love, in his fatherly care, he may not give you all the detail that you think you need because he already knows what you need. So don't rely on this funny feeling that you get in your tummy in order to make a decision that you know God wants you to make. Now, what should you rely on? On your relationship with a God that you know. You know his character. The God whose spirit bears witness with our own that we're his children. The God who reveals himself in the pages of scripture. Now I know I didn't get a lot of amens on that because you're probably thinking about it. But this is very important, you guys. It's very important that we recognize God, the value that God places on faith and the reality that he may ask us to act on faith. Saul sees, uh, he clings to his crown Jonathan bears the standard of I am. Saul sees obstacles. Jonathan sees opportunities. Saul uses divination. Jonathan rests on God's revealed character. And then fourthly, consider with me, Saul scatters God's people, but Jonathan rallies them. Saul scatters God's people, but Jonathan rallies them. What I mean is that the disposition of both Saul and Jonathan has an impact, not just in their own lives, but also in the lives of others. Saul starts out with 3,000 men. Then he begins to lead from a place of self-reliance and self-importance. He's disobedient to God. He's fearful of the enemy, and God's people scatter. Some of them even go over to the side of the enemy. This is what sin does. It creates suspicion and fear and immediately begins to break down the relationships among human beings. You remember what happened all the way back in the beginning of the Bible. Adam and Eve choose to sin. Then they have children and immediately their sin leads their children to begin fighting with one another and one of them kills the other one. This is what sin does. Think about your own upbringing. Most of you can relate to this. If you're like most people, you have spent your entire life trying to deal with harmful destructive tendencies in yourself that you can trace directly back to the way that you were led by your family and the culture in which you were brought up. These fears, these hatreds, these greedy desires that break you away from the people that you care about. If you're married, these are the things that are hurting your spouse that you're having to work through together. But then Jonathan walks on the scene and he sacrifices his own safety. He's hopeful. He has the joy of the Lord. He sees opportunities. He relies on what he knows about God instead of wallowing and waiting. He's wise. And the result of that kind of leadership is that he instills that fearlessness and that faith in the people of Israel. And they begin to kind of come out of the woodwork and they join up behind Jonathan and they go and they gain the victory together. Now, if you're like me, your default is to see an example like Jonathan and and see how he 
single-handedly affects a turnaround in the fortunes of the children of Israel and how effective he is as a leader. And uh, your tendency, maybe like mine, is to sort of jot down all the ways that Jonathan is a good leader and say, you know what, if I'm like that, I could be a good leader too. I should be courageous, not cowardly. I should uh, be decisive, not wishy-washy. I should be self-sacrificing, not self-protecting. I should be hopeful rather than despairing. And if I can cultivate these qualities, then I'll be an effective leader too. And that's important. That's valuable up to a point. That's fine as far as it goes. But here's the thing. If I manage to cultivate all these characteristics and people start to follow me and do what I tell them to do, like what good is that really going to do anyone? I mean, I might get a little bit more popular, right? I might make a little bit more money. It might do something for me. But if that's where we leave it, then what's that going to do for everybody else? So what I'm getting at is when we encounter a hero in Scripture, a warrior like Jonathan, we have every reason to try to follow his example of faith. That's important. But it's important that we go deeper than that because he's not just an example of faithfulness. He's an example. He's an illustration of the one in whom our faith should rest. And that leads us to our final point of comparison between Saul and Jonathan. Saul points us back to the first Adam, and Jonathan previews the second. Saul points us back to the first Adam, but Jonathan previews the second. See, what we're seeing over and over again in this book of the Bible is that human leaders may vary in the minor details of how they make decisions, but at the end of the day, they follow the same broad path that Adam followed years before. They disappoint. Saul, like Adam, was commissioned by God to rule creation and represent him in the world, but he fails, he rebels, he disobeys, he falls short. It's, it's exactly like the passage that Bill read earlier in the service. And this is our tendency. We say, you know, uh, Adam sinned, he failed, Saul failed, a lot of these other people in the Bible, they failed, and I'm learning a lot from that. I want to be more like Jonathan. I want to be more like you know, King David or, or uh, Joseph in the Bible or somebody else that we can read about in Scripture and say that was a good example. And we think, we deceive ourselves, we trick ourselves into thinking, I am going to be different and I am going to be more obedient and I'm going to be more faithful than these other guys. But listen, if that's the takeaway that you're bringing from this, that's the wrong takeaway. See, what you should, when you see King Saul in there, what you, should see, what you should see is, I'm like him. I am faithless. I've been disobedient. I've been rebellious. And I need to be led by someone who isn't in that rut. And I look out at all these people in my church, all these people in my family, all these people that I work with, and not a single one of them can do anything better than I can do to bring me out of where I am. I'm under sin, just like we read from Romans 5, and because I'm under sin, I'm also under what? Death. No, I need somebody who comes from the outside, someone who's not like me, someone who can represent me well, who can be the obedient son, someone who can be the second Adam. Because if you or I were in Adam's place, we might not do exactly the same thing that Saul does, but we would show ourselves to be just as corrupted and twisted. We need someone to take our place. And Jonathan's example taps into something we all feel deep inside. 
We need a leader, and we need more than a leader. We need a rescuer. We need someone who's going to sacrifice himself. We need someone who's going to go to battle with the enemy to be a true king, not a disappointment or a coward or a tyrant. Jonathan is the example of faith, yes, but he's, he's an illustration of the one in whom our faith should rest. See, Jesus comes and he doesn't cling to his crown, does he? He lays it aside in order to take a crown of thorns. He faces the cross for the joy set before him and he leans into suffering in order to see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus entrusts himself to the Father even in the darkest moments and as he promised, when he's lifted up, he's gonna draw all men to himself. This is the rescuer we need. So this morning, what I wanna ask you to do is just sort of put yourself in the sandals of these other children of Israel who are watching this take place. I mean, what happened to them? Many of them, they defected to the side of the enemy, didn't they? Others were following, they didn't know what to do. They were following a leader who couldn't rescue them. Others tried to hide. They just tried to escape. They didn't know where else to go. They just tried to run away. And I just wonder which one of those types of people are you? Have you joined the enemy because you thought maybe you might win if that's what you decide to do? Have you been following somebody that can't rescue or save? Have you just decided to kind of bury your head in the sand? Listen, I hope today that you recognize that you need a rescuer, that you can't find it in yourself, that you can't find it in anybody else except for Jesus Christ. And I hope you turn to him today and make today the day when you make a commitment to stop trusting in yourself or in, other, in, in somebody else and give your life to a better savior, a better hero, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me now?